American philanthropist John Shedd once said, a ship in harbor is safe, but that is not what ships are built for. Ships are built to sail, not sit safely in a dry dock. Yet ships need time in the harbor to prepare for the ocean. Churches are much the same. Churches are designed by God to carry out his mission. We are designed by God to reach this world, our mission. Yet churches also need to gather regularly in preparation for that mission. Unfortunately, we as churches get quite comfortable in the harbor. It's protective, it's comfortable, it's easier in the harbor than out on the ocean of this world. And we have a tendency to forget our mission in that process. We begin to focus on our gathering rather than our going. And Acts reminds us that we gather to go. There is a purpose behind our gathering, and it is to prepare us to go. The gathering prepares us for our mission, and we need the regular gathering to prepare for the going. And in the book of Acts, we will learn much about the way the early church functioned. That's one of the exciting things about the book of Acts, is looking at how did the early church function during that period of time. And we will learn a great deal about how the early church functioned, the patterns that were a part of the early church. And here is one fundamental pattern that we see as we begin in Acts chapter 1. The pattern of the early church, as we see the disciples here, was they gathered to go. And that's a pattern we need to remember in our own lives as Christians and in our life as a local assembly here. What we do on Sunday mornings is to prepare us for where we go into the world the rest of the week. We gather to go. So let's take a look at the principles from this passage regarding their gathering that prepared them to go. Principle number one, unified prayer is essential to our gathering. Verses 12 to 14 of Acts chapter 1. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers." Now, Jesus had gathered his disciples and given them their final instructions on the mount that is called the Olive Grove. The Mount of Olives is really just a long hill on the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem. It rises only about 200 feet higher than the Temple Mount itself. So this is not, you know, a massive mountain at all. It's really a long 
hill with a number of little tops to the hill. Jesus had told them back in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4, and we looked at that passage a couple of weeks ago, he had told them back there to stay in Jerusalem and to wait for what the Father had promised. And according to Luke chapter 24 and verse 49, they were to stay in the city until they were empowered by the Holy Spirit to carry out their mission into this world. So, The disciples here in Acts 1 verse 12 returned then to the upstairs room in the city of Jerusalem. The mount that is called the Olive Grove, the Mount of the Olive Grove, was about a Sabbath day's journey from where they were staying. A a Sabbath journey was fixed in the Old Testament as 2,000 cubits. Depending upon your measurement uh, because cubits were measured in different ways. That is approximately between a half a mile and a three quarters of a mile. The, that's the distance that, the, that this, uh, their room, the place they were staying in Jerusalem was away from where they had asc- they'd seen Jesus ascend. We don't know where the upstairs room was in the city of Jerusalem. Tradition has it on the southwestern side of, of the uh, Temple Mount. We don't really know. We don't even really know if they went back to the room where Jesus had held the Last Supper because we're not really told it's an upstairs room. It is certainly, however, the home of a wealthy family because that's the only place that would have had the space to hold what we will see in verse 15 is 120 people at this first church gathering. The wealthy homes in Jerusalem did build sufficient there were some of them were sufficient to hold that many people what they would do the wealthy would build on the top of their roof remember they had flat roofs and on the top of their roof they would build a large room and uh, this was especially important in the hotter weather and that sort of thing and and so in this wealthy home where they were staying they would have had this upstairs room on the rooftop where they were gathering This is, of course, the first gathering of what will be called the church. Not even called the church yet. Notice what they gathered to do, though, in verse 14. It says they were all, with one mind, continually or persistently devoting themselves to prayer. Now, we can learn a lot from this first church gathering, this first gathering of of believers. I noticed, first of all, that they were unified. Did you see that? They were gathering with one mind. The word refers to a group acting as one unit. The word shows the fundamental unity of the early church. They had gathered for one purpose, and they were acting in one unit, or as one unit in what they did. And that is vitally important for the health of any church. A church must function in unity. Divided churches do not grow. Divided churches die. The first step for any church is to become one in spirit and purpose with one another. That is the foundation for the mission. Until any local church 
gathers in unity, she will never be ready to carry out her mission. And that is a vitally important concept for any church. I want to say this, though. Unity is not unanimity. They are not the same thing. We do not have to agree with each other in every single matter of life to be functioning in unity. That is an impossibility this side of heaven, folks. We're different, and that's okay. Unity is not unanimity. We can agree to disagree on many matters and still function in unity with one another. But we must be unified in our purpose, and we must maintain a spirit of unity in our relationships with one another to function in unity, to be of one mind, to act as one unit, this local church. So a negative, critical spirit will kill a local church ministry. And I want to say this kindly, but very firmly this morning. If people in our church become negative, critical, unkind, and unwilling to work together in unity, then we are better off as a church if they leave so that we can get on with the ministry God wants us to do. We can get on with the mission We can get healthy and get on with the mission that God wants us to to accomplish rather than always being caught up in the internal negativity that takes place. The church has to get to that point of health so that they can then, with one mind, as one unit, be ready to accomplish the mission God wants to, uh, to accomplish through that church, through us as a church. All right, the second thing that I notice is that they were persisting in prayer. Now, I don't know about you. I suspect you're a lot like me. Most often I pray petitions, right? I ask God for something. Isn't that most often how we pray? Certainly it is when I see us gather for prayer. You know, we list out the prayer requests And we pray that God will do something to answer these prayer requests. So quite often we're praying for health, that God would heal someone or fix a problem or find somebody a job or all of these issues that we deal with in life. And we're asking God to do these things for us, both ourselves and for other people we know. That is we are making requests to God in prayer. Now, there is nothing wrong with making requests to God in prayer. We are told to do that elsewhere in Scripture, so don't get me wrong here. We we certainly know that God wants to hear our requests. We want to make those requests known to Him. But that is not the kind of prayer that they are praying here. And it is not the kind of prayer that actually prepares us for mission even though it's fine to pray that way, and I do so many, many times as you do. This is, in this passage, is what we might say is waiting on God kind of prayer. 
It's waiting on God kind of prayer. They are not praying for God to do something for them. They are praying that God would change them to be ready to join God in what he is doing. Can you see that major difference in prayer? He commanded them to go back to Jerusalem and wait. The one thing they're supposed to do right now is wait for the Holy Spirit. And I want to make clear here that they are not praying for the Holy Spirit to come. Some people suggest they're, they're meeting here and they're asking God to send the Holy Spirit. There's nothing in the text that says they are asking God for that at all. God has already promised them that the Holy Spirit will come upon them and empower them. And he has commanded them to go back to Jerusalem and wait. That's it. So they are waiting. They don't need to pray for that promise. They need to be ready, however, to accept that promise when the Holy Spirit comes. They need to be ready to join God in what he is doing. And that's what waiting on God kind of prayer does. It gets us ready to accept what the Lord wants us to do and to join him in what he is doing. Not what we want to do both individually and as a church. Psalm 130, verse 5 says, I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. This is waiting on God in prayer. We as a church need to gather and wait on God to show us his plan so we can join God in what he is doing. You as an individual need to wait on God in prayer to show you his plans for you. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like waiting. But that is a fundamental principle of preparing for mission, both individually and corporately. Prayer is not trying to get God to do what we want. Prayer is letting God change us to do what he wants, to get on his wave, to join his work. What does God want to do in Gorham, Maine? That's what we need to find out. How does God want to work through the gifts here in this assembly? What does he want to do with us, with you? God, I'm waiting on you. Show me that. And I've prayed that prayer very much over the last year. For us as a church, waiting on you to show us so that we and preparing our hearts to join you, Lord, in what you want to accomplish through us. In The Higher Happiness, Ralph Sockman describes the true intention of this kind of prayer. He says, we use prayer as a boatman uses a boat hook to pull the boat to shore and not to try to pull the shore to the boat. (laughs) See what he's saying? When we are waiting on God in prayer, we are not trying to pull God to us. We're trying to pull ourselves to God in prayer. We are allowing God to pull us to him. We pray, God, show us what we should do and make us willing to do it as a church. That's that's what they were doing right here. Not long before his death, 
Henry Nguyen wrote a book called Sabbatical Journeys. He writes about some friends of his who were trapeze artists called the Flying Rudellas. And they told Nguyen there's a special relationship between the flyer and the catcher in trapeze work. I bet there is. You know, it makes sense to me, right? The flyer is the one who lets go. The catcher is the one who catches. And they each have to do what they're supposed to do in order for the trapeze work to to, to take place safely. As the flyer swings high above and gets to that point where the flyer lets go and stretches out, the flyer has to stay very still until the catcher catches him or her. One of the flying rudellas told Nguyen, the flyer must never try to catch the catcher because that doesn't work. Now, if I was flying through the air, <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be reaching for that catcher, right? <laughs> but you have to be perfectly still, they said, and let the catcher catch you. You trust the catcher. That's waiting on God kind of prayer. It's saying, God, I trust you. I'm waiting on you. You'll catch me. I'm going to be still and know that you are God. I'm going to trust you. That's the kind of prayer they're going through here. And it is essential for the gathering of believers to have waiting on God prayer. Show us, Lord. Second principle this morning. Biblical teaching is foundational for our gathering. Look at verse 15. And at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there together, and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his portion in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakeldama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be desolate and let no man dwell in it, and his office let another man take. All right, the church gathering actually lasts about 10 days here, continuously, as a gathering. Because we know that Jesus ascended after 40 days. Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, takes place after 50 days. So there's a 10-day period that they are gathering as a church, as a body of believers. And we have seen already that they were persistently in prayer. That doesn't mean they, it was 24-7. It just means they were persistently in prayer during that time. Now we see they did more than pray, though. They were also studying God's word in preparation for their mission. And at some point during that 10-day period, Peter delivers this sermon. And we will see over and over in the book of Acts sermons that are delivered. What you need to understand is that these sermons that we see in Acts are really summary versions of the sermon. They're 
they're summarized for the record, so to speak. It doesn't mean that we're getting every word that Peter would have said or that there were not other sermons or studies going on during that time period. We assume there were many of those kinds of things happening in the gathering. What Peter does in this first sermon, though, at the first church gathering, is what all good preachers should do and what I pray before God that I do each and every Sunday morning when we gather. He takes the word of God and he applies that word to life and to their situation. I think that the apostles were probably busy looking through the Old Testament during these days to discern all that God had said about what Jesus had done and what Jesus was calling them to do as a church. And Peter, in his search of the scriptures, was also thinking about Judas and the leadership of this gathering of believers. So he looks at the scriptures and he applies the scriptures to that situation. And the situation is obvious. Judas had been one of the twelve. He had shared in the ministry with them during Jesus' life on this earth. And piecing together this account with the other gospel accounts, we get the story of Judas' tragic end, don't we? Judas had been paid 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus and to lead lead the authorities to the place where they could arrest Jesus that night. Sometime after that, Judas had regrets. And he goes back to, based on the gospel records, he goes back to the the Pharisees and he says, I don't want the money, they don't want the money, so he throws the money at them and he leaves. And the text says he went out and hanged himself in the gospels. The authorities don't want that money, so they take that money and they purchase a vacant lot in the city of Jerusalem. And they purchase it in Judas' name. So this is the lot of Judas, really, the the property of Judas. Judas, full of guilt, remorse, regret, ends up hanging himself, falling in that lot, either already dead or the fall killed him, we're not really certain, falling in that lot and splitting wide open and dying there in the vacant lot. What a tragic story. And the people of Jerusalem came to call this vacant lot in the city of Jerusalem the field of blood. That's the situation. And Peter looks at that situation and he sees a lesson for the people in the church gathering that they need to hear from the Old Testament scriptures. And this is a lesson then that was good for all of them to think about at this time. In verse 20, Peter quotes from Psalm 69, 25. He applies the message of that psalm to Judas. Psalm 69, when you go back and study the psalm, is a prayer of the righteous to God to judge the enemies of God, to judge the enemies of righteousness. God judge them, for they stand against you. And Peter says that this verse applies to Judas and what happened to Judas. He probably commented on more than just this verse, since this is a summary of the sermon, not the entire sermon. Let's just read through the verses that surround the one phrase or section that he quoted. Pour out thy indignation. This is a prayer, remember. 
We call them imprecatory psalms or imprecatory prayers in the Old Testament where the righteous person is imprecating God, asking God to judge those who are against God. Pour out thy indignation on them and may thy burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents. That's the section he quoted applying it to Judas, for they have persecuted him whom thou thyself hast smitten, and they tell of those whom thou hast pierced. Peter says this applies to Judas. The point is that the death of Judas was an example of how God judges those who stand against God, those who are his enemies. Judas died as an act of God's sovereign judgment, is what Peter is saying. God is sovereign. God is in control of everything. The betrayal and the death of Jesus on the cross was no surprise to God, was it? And the death of Judas was no accident. It was God's judgment for what he had done. That's what Peter is saying. And that's a warning to all believers then. Here we see a good pattern for all of us to follow in our church gatherings. Biblical teaching is foundational. We will not be prepared to carry out the mission if we do not have a good foundation from the scriptures. But we also see that the foundation that we need is not just information about the Bible. We don't need just more facts and figures, more data, more information from the Scriptures. The kind of preaching that Peter engages here takes the principles of the Scriptures and applies them to our lives and what we're going through right now. In this case, the situation with Judas. And that's the same kind of thing that we need in our lives. And it is my goal in preaching each and every Sunday, and I trust it is Mark's goal in the ABF and in the small groups where Bible study takes place. It is our goal not just to have more information about the Bible, but it is our goal for that information to be applied to our lives in practical ways. Because otherwise, it doesn't prepare us for mission. Otherwise, it's simply an academic exercise. But when we do that, when we gather in our gatherings, and we make sure that the scriptures are looked at and applied to our life situations, then we are better prepared to go out into this world and witness, and speak, and serve, and function for God on a mission. Unfortunately, as I survey the landscape of American Christianity now, I can't say this all over the globe, but certainly I think in American Christianity, quite frankly, I believe as a church in in America now, we are very shallow. We are very shallow church. An awful lot of preaching and an awful lot of teaching is what I call the birdbath technique. You've heard me say that before. It's an inch deep and a mile wide. 
We are so afraid of offending someone, we are so interested in placating everyone that we don't take the scriptures and apply them to our lives. And so we're not prepared for mission. And our church in America becomes very shallow. And it's comfortable. And it's nice. And it's churchy. But what does it do? You see, that is the question. Is it just going to be nice and comfy and easy? Or is the study of God's word changing us, remaking us, moving us to go and reach? You see the difference? So much of what happens in the American church doesn't do that, and it's sad. And I don't want that for us as a church. And I pray that God is at work in our lives through his word, and as we, in prayer, align ourselves with him so that we are being prepared constantly to go out into the mission field of this world all around us. God's truth, then, is foundational to our mission, and if that doesn't happen, then the church becomes weak and impotent and ultimately dies. All right, then Peter, he quotes that, and he applies it to Judas. Then he quotes another passage there in verse 20 and applies that to Judas as well. He quotes a second passage to show what needs to be done to replace Judas. And this passage is Psalm 109, verse 8. Once again, it is a judgment passage about how God replaces a wicked leader, one who has turned away from following God, with one who takes that person, that wicked leader's office or position. And the word for office here that is quoted is the word we later find in the New Testament for overseer or elder or bishop. And that leads to the third principle this morning in verses 21 through 26. Spiritual leadership is important in our gathering. Verse 21, having just said his office let another man take in verse 20, he says, it is therefore necessary, as Peter continues his sermon, it is therefore necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, who knowest the hearts of all men, show, show which one of these two thou hast chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven Apostles. There's a common theme, I think, that I see over and over again in my reading regarding the American church today. Much Christian writing today about the church. And I want to say this kindly, but I think it's a false teaching. 
And it's a significant false teaching because it's permeating a lot of our thought process. I have read many, many times in recent days those who say something along these lines. The first century church did not have any offices or formal positions of leadership. Did not have any. And the idea is, and the thinking behind all of this, and the emphasis, the result of it is also, that the church is egalitarian, which is just a a really hot-button topic today. That the church is egalitarian. That means we are all equally equal. There are no offices, there are no formal positions, there are none of those kinds of leadership structures. If we go back to the early church, they didn't have that, and we all need to be equally equal. Now, of course, theologically, in standing before Jesus Christ, we are equally equal, right? I mean, there's no one higher than another in terms of our standing before Jesus Christ. There's neither Greek nor Jew, there's neither free nor slave, you know, there's... We're, we're all equal before Jesus Christ. But in terms of church order, that is a false teaching. And when you really study the New Testament, you find that there were offices, there was order because God is a God of order, and the church had formal structures and organization to it. It wasn't just this egalitarian, free-for-all kind of thing that I see an awful lot of people saying today. It sounds very spiritual, but it's false when you look at the New Testament record. And right away, here in the very first gathering, we see this. These verses teach that the very first formal office in the church was the office of apostle. In verse 25, a word is used that is sometimes left untranslated or probably badly translated says they were seeking God's direction to select one man to receive or take the place. It's that word place. And then that place is described by two descriptions. It is the place of ministry and the place of apostleship, describing the same place. Now the Greek word that is translated place, if it's translated at all in your Bibles, is a word that means office or position. And he's already just quoted about an office that another man takes in the previous verse. So one of these two men was chosen by God to take the office or the position of the ministry and the apostleship. So the apostles were the first formal office. I mean, ministry we understand, it's service. The word will later be used for deacon in the church, for example. But what is the office of apostle, and what are the qualifications to be an apostle? They're laid out here. It's very clear in his sermon. Two men were nominated by the other apostles to join them as the twelfth apostle. And two criteria are laid out by Peter for the office of apostle. First, a person is qualified to be an apostle if he has been with Jesus during his entire earthly ministry, from the baptism of John until the ascension. He is a witness to all of that. An apostle was someone who had walked with Jesus from 
the inception of his ministry until he ascended to heaven. The second criteria for apostleship was that the person had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. So this person had seen Jesus at some time during the last 40 days before he ascended. And two men were qualified then. Justus and Matthias were qualified to serve as the 12th apostle. Now before I continue, let me address one matter that also often comes up in our study of this passage. Some argue that this selection was a mistake. That they shouldn't have done this and that they made the wrong choice and who should be the 12th apostle? The apostle Paul. Some argue that they messed up here and that Paul was supposed to be God's 12th apostle. But I say to you there was no mistake here. First of all, because there's no indication in the text that God was displeased with this process. No indication that they did something wrong. They were waiting on God, and he guided them in that process. But more importantly, Paul is not qualified to be the 12th apostle. Why? He didn't live and walk with Jesus during the three years before that, from the baptism of John until the ascension of Christ. Paul was not qualified. He didn't meet the criteria that God was laying out through Peter. Now, that leads us to a further discussion, however, regarding apostleship that is important. Paul is an apostle, is he not? He says he is an apostle, but he uses language, of course, that indicates he is an apostle born out of due time, an extension of apostleship to include him. So Paul is definitely apostle, but the word apostle is used in, elsewhere in the New Testament in a wider or broader sense than the technical sense that it is used here as a formal office. Paul did witness the resurrected Christ, but he had not walked with Jesus during his earthly ministry, so I don't think Paul was the 12th apostle, but he was an apostle in the broader sense of the term. One more comment. Why 12? Have you thought about that? Why, why did they have to have a 12th apostle? Well, probably because Jesus had spoken to that issue and had predicted that the 12 apostles would sit on 12 thrones when Jesus Christ returned. So they were looking to fill that 12th slot, that 12th apostle's position, in order to fulfill what Jesus wanted. They needed 12 apostles. All right. Finally, let me say that the office of apostle, I believe, ended with Matthias for two reasons. All right? First, when, G when James was killed in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, there was no replacement named for him. So it clearly indicates to me that they didn't continue to feel the need to fill the apostleship. And secondly, no one after this time period could have fulfilled the first requirement, the first criteria of having walked with Jesus during those three years in his ministry on earth.
So I believe that the office of apostle ends with these 12 apostles. It was, I would say, a temporary office upon which the church was founded. Ephesians 2.20 says that God founded his church upon the foundation of apostles and prophets. Now, Paul refers to himself as an apostle and extended application of apostleship. His apostleship was a sort of extended or broader apostleship, not the technical office then. By the way, the word is also used in the New Testament for one other person, and after that it's never used again, and that was Barnabas, who also would have been an apostle in the non-technical or office sense of the term. Now, it's very important to understand that the word apostle, however, has a broader sense to it. And that's important for our lives today. The word apostle means sent one. Sent out. Okay? It means a commissioned one. And in this sense, many are apostles because they are sent out ones. It's not an office anymore. It's a function. And indeed, each of the 12 apostles were sent out ones in the missionary sense of the word. Matthias is sent out in his apostleship. Church tradition, by the way, I mean, we never see Matthias again in the book of Acts, but church tradition says that he went as a missionary to Ethiopia, and he built the church in Africa as a sent out one by Jesus Christ, as an apostle, as a missionary. So it's very important to understand that the first office of the church, even that first 12, was not for maintenance of the church, but was for mission. And in the extended sense, we still need missionaries, that is, sent out ones, that is, apostles in that broad sense of the term. But these early apostles were to have a missionary mindset and not just a maintenance mindset. The first office of the church was a missionary office as God sent out his church into this world. A friend of Johanna Reardon's and their family took his first rural pastorate and they made plans to visit him in his little country church and they took down some very specific directions. It's out in the Midwest somewhere. Wrote down some very specific directions how to find this church. And he said, you will come to this corner in the middle of nowhere and there will be a sign that tells you where our church building is located. And so they drove to find him and they couldn't find the sign anywhere. They looked and they looked. Finally, by accident, they located the church building, so that was fine, and they, they went to church there, and they told their, their young pastor friend about the trouble that they had, and he was confused, so he asked the church tr- trustee what had happened to the sign. The trustee explained, I took it down for the winter so it wouldn't become weathered. <laughs> now, That is a typical, what kind of mindset? Maintenance kind of mindset. Not a missional mindset. And we as churches can easily fall into the maintenance mindset. And it's not just with 
respect to our properties or our buildings and those kinds of things. What's the difference? Well, a maintenance mode of ministry is all about taking care of us, meeting our needs, loving those who are like us, protecting our property and resources. A missional mode of thinking is all about reaching them, meeting their needs, loving those who are different than us, using our property and resources to reach those who don't know Christ. Now, all the way through the book of Acts, we're going to see this struggle. Because the early church is going to struggle with the very same thing that we struggle with over and over and over again in the book of Acts. They're going to revert regularly back to a maintenance mindset. And God's going to have to push them through various ways into a missional mindset. And we will see this struggle all the way through the book of Acts. And we have to work hard to think missionally. We gather here on Sunday mornings to prepare ourselves then to go. Not just to be comfortable. To prepare ourselves to go out into the community to reach people for Christ. So the gathering is important because it prepares us for our mission. And we are going to face opposition. Criticism. Struggle. When you start reaching out. When you start stepping out. You'll get some flack. You'll get criticism. You'll get negative responses. Opposition. We're going to face struggles in carrying out our mission as a church. And that's why they, in the, in the book of Acts, often sort of fell back into their maintenance mindset, and it's why we do as well. We gather to prepare ourselves, though, to do what God calls us to do, to strengthen our hearts for what task he wants us to accomplish. We gather to go. April 15, 1947, Jackie Robinson became pro baseball's first black player. And that has been celebrated over and over again. He debuted on that day with the Brooklyn Dodgers. There's an amazing story, however, behind that story that has come out once again in a number of articles here in 2011 commemorating that whole experience. Branch Rickey was the Dodgers baseball executive who eventually signed Jackie Robinson. Branch Rickey, his pastor, was Wendell Fifield from the Plymouth Church of the Pilgrims in Brooklyn, New York. This church at one time had been pastored by Henry Ward Beecher and had a long history of working in earlier years with the Underground Railroad to help free slaves. While Branch Rickey was trying to decide if he should sign Jackie Robinson, he paid a visit to Pastor Fifield in his office. He barged into the pastor's study and he told Fifield, don't let me interrupt, I just want to be here, do you mind? According to an eyewitness report written by Fifield's wife, June, the two men passed the time without words that day. They were just there. 
The pastor continued his work, and Branch Rickey paced the floor back and forth, looking out the window, spending an extended period of time there in the office. Finally, Branch Rickey broke the silence. He pounded his fist on the pastor's desk, and he shouted, I've got it! Got what, Branch? the pastor asked. And June Fifield said that Branch Rickey finally relaxed in a chair and told the pastor, this was no complex fraught. This was so complex, he said, fraught with so many pitfalls, but filled with so much good, if it was right that I just had to work it out in this room with you. I had to talk to God about it and be sure what he wanted me to do. I hope you don't mind. They hadn't even talked. Wendell, he said, I've decided to sign Jackie Robinson. Then Branch Rickey straightened his bow tie, donned his hat, and left the room. Bless you, Wendell. It's nice to be a pastor and get blessings for, you know, you know, what did you do? Right? In a couple of interviews here in 2011, people who knew Branch Rickey reflected on that story. Branch Rickey's grandson said that when a well-known journalist told Branch Rickey that all hell would break loose when Jackie Robinson took the field, Rickey quietly countered, I believe all heaven will rejoice. Also, Jackie Robinson's widow, Rachel, had this to say about Branch Rickey's need to pray about the decision. He knew he was going to be pretty well isolated in making it, so he needed all the strength he could summon up to be able to take the next step. Isn't that an amazing story? Getting in tune with God before we make that step. That's exactly what the church is supposed to do. That's exactly what each and every one of us are supposed to do before we go. So that where we're going and what we're doing is what God wants us to go and do. And guess what? All heaven will rejoice when we're in tune with him and doing what he wants us to do. Father, as we go out into this world now for you, let us focus on joining you in what you are doing through us, in us, around us, before us, and give us the courage, knowing that oftentimes people will not understand, people will oppose, people won't like it. But when we are in tune with you, we have prepared well to go, then we know that you rejoice in all that we do for you.